Welcome to the Umoja podcast brought to you by the African Studies Student Association of McGill. I'm Emily, VP Events at ASSA, and I'm here today with Felicia, VP Finance of ASSA. And also, we're very glad to have Karaoke Kiryuga with us today. Maybe you can present yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so my name is Karyoki Kirigia. I come from Kenya. Currently, I'm a PhD candidate uh, in the Department of Apology at McGill University. My research focuses on uh, land governance and innovation issues in East Africa. So um, looking forward to today's discussion about climate change, uh, which is a topic that closely relates uh, to what I'm studying. And I hope to share my insights uh, today. Thank you very much. Um, so I'll begin with the first question. I feel like last year with, you know, like Greta Thunberg becoming very popular, uh, people have started all over the world to get more sensitized on uh, climate change questions. Uh, would you say that people are as aware of environmental change in different parts of Africa? Oh, absolutely. Um, people have been aware about environmental changes in Africa for, I think, quite a long time. It's... Um, I think what has happened more recently is more the academic popularization and the kind of the scientific um, attention to it. So uh, to start with, I could say that, um, you know, the idea of climate change and uh, the science behind it as well has been there. But um, we go back to 1987, really, uh, when we started talking about sustainable development and uh, caring for the planet in order to cater for future generations. And uh, since then, we've had continued um, global efforts uh, to address climate change and uh, to cater for the planet. So in Africa, uh, continent-wise, people have been aware about uh, uh, climate change, where, whether it's different terminologies or concepts are used. Uh, we can see even in our traditions or indigenous communities, the way they have organized themselves in terms of seasons, whether they're agrarian or pastoral communities, or even in urban areas, but mainly in the pastoral and agrarian communities, you can see that um, traditionally these communities have organized themselves in accordance with seasons and that they have given names and cultural events, all of them that are very much are closely related to these changing seasons. So, and this is built on the idea of understanding basically how the environment works and that the patterns that have evolved uh, uh, that have been basically uh, studied uh, by these communities over time. And um, currently, of course, uh, these changes have affected different groups. Uh, I don't know whether you want me to go to that already or... Yeah, that was actually your next question, because as you mm -hmm. said, I mean, uh, in different parts of Africa, people have been aware of environmental challenges for quite a long time because it has directly affected their communities. While in the Western world, let's say, uh, because people could not feel the environmental changes in their everyday lives. Some people were way more skeptical on um, if it was real or not. So we were gonna ask you about the, what do you think are the principal environmental challenges faced throughout uh, the African continent? So you could go on and talk about that. So in the recent past years, I mean, of course, um, environmental ch changes and challenges have been there. But uh, what you've seen in the recent past years is the uh, increased frequency of these changes and challenges. Uh, for instance, extreme weather, you can talk of the um, you know, dry um, seasons being longer. Uh, you also have changed weather patterns where basically if it's uh, people expecting rain and it does not rain, people expect uh, it to be sunny and all of a sudden it's raining. And uh, like I've said before, um, 
indigenous communities, local communities have traditionally organized themselves around these seasons. So when there are these disruptions that are occurring frequently, then it really disturbs the mode of life and the way people have organized themselves. So we could start, for example, with um, farming communities um, where people basically uh, to, to farm uh, is, uh, is a long process and not basically just uh, putting something in the soil and um, um, if it's spain fed or irrigation fed and then it grows and you get it. No, it's a long process of planning where you have to till the land, prepare it, get the seeds ready and all that or the seedlings. And then uh, you make sure that uh, you, for instance, in the, um, in the uh, East African area, usually you have the long rain seasons and the uh, short rain seasons. So for instance, in Kenya around March there, you'll find people are preparing and planting and then waiting for the long rain season to begin in April. So when you have those disturbances in terms of weather patterns, then it means that if you put your seedlings and seeds uh, on the ground and then the rain doesn't come, all of those, all of those disappear. So then uh, the moment that this, this, uh, this occurs more frequently, then people get confused and they start now, uh, instead of preparing it as did before, they have to adapt and maybe wait until it rains. And that means sometimes they are late. And this disturbs the whole system of uh, basically keeping life going because these activities are meant to sustain life, whether it's food production or whichever activities are taking place. Uh, in terms of pastoralism, and this is where I've been doing research on uh, among the Maasai people. Um, I, I, would, I would say they're even uh, as well more affected because uh, pastoral activities are based on mobility and access to pasture and water. So when these resources are not available according to the uh, seasonal calendars that they, uh, that they use, then what happens is that um, you know you have, people are faced with uh, with droughts when they expect there to be rain, uh, or they have to travel further than they used to because uh, the, the the rainfall patterns have changed, and therefore accessing pasture and water has to be uh, adapted. And this has a lot of um, uh, additional costs or challenges that come with it because uh, people as they start to uh, get to new uh, areas or go further than they used to go to newer areas they also experience uh, start to experience new diseases and that, that affect their livestock and so all of this come together and you know and, and with changing environment as well you find that um, uh, going to different places or comes with issues of security we are seeing in terms of nation states becoming more territorialized that is national borders becoming more enforced so if you're in Kenya and you want to go to Tanzania it's not as easy as before but um, the weather patterns are changing in such a way that you would have to go there. But due to uh, the politics of the day, you can't be able to access those areas. So all of those come together and affect uh, these communities in a, in a massive way. So we are seeing um, basically uh, climate change making already uh, existing challenges more complex uh, because of the kind of politics and the and, and, the, uh, and the, the other challenges that are intertwined in there. Uh, the other thing is we're seeing as well forest fires. I mean, we've had this in Australia, in North America, California uh, last year, but also in East Africa, we've seen um, forest fires uh, increasing. And um, these are part of you know, the dry season extending. And then we have these fires. And again, um, the ability to put them out has been has not been established because again these are newer challenges and so then you find that areas that have been conserved for a long time are being are burnt away so these are i would say 
part of the challenges that we are seeing. And of course, we can't forget what has happened in uh, you know Mozambique, you know, with uh, all the flooding and the, the the numbers of lives that have been lost, people displaced, and and so we are seeing new challenges coming with climate change. And uh, most of these challenges are challenges that people have not uh, do not have experience with. And so even the coping mechanisms, um, now it's a phase where people are starting to, to think about, okay, how can we cope with this? Because uh, of the nature in which, we, of how new they are. Um, let's say pollution in the world, um, CO2 or greenhouse gases in Montreal. It's not necessarily that it's going to affect uh, weather change or cross climate changes in Montreal, it can affect any part of the world. Mm -hmm. And so whatever uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are occurring any part of the world, they might result in affecting changes in other, in a totally different part of the world, which might not be the one that's responsible for, for emissions. And that's why we're talking of uh, climate change being a global effort, because uh, no matter where you are, you might be affected by it, uh, even though you yourself, you're not, you're, you're carrying out or conducting your life in, a, in an environmental friendly way. So, so I think that's where we are at. Or uh, maybe let me just stop in, wait for your other questions. And I can... Follow up question maybe to what you just said. So you talked yes. a lot about uh, rural areas. I'm wondering in urban centers, what are the effects? Like, are, do they even like realize that much that there's urgency, this emergency in rural areas? Mm. How are they affected? Is there like a move of population? I'm, I'm assuming with my basic like knowledge about like movement, my right. stuff, I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of movement of population from rural areas to urban centers, maybe like mm -hmm. all these, uh, uh, these issues you just, you just talked about. Right. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, um, this is a good question. I, I should have mentioned as well about the urban areas. Um, so what you see is um, uh, the movement from rural to urban uh, areas has been there, but uh, now with, um, with a, what is happening with climate change. And we know very well that the urban areas and rural areas are very interconnected. Where does the food that urban people eat come from? It comes from the rural areas. And so, and you know, food, food, you need food to survive basically. And you cannot depend just on urban farming to be able to feed urban populations. So one of the challenges or, or one of the challenges that is felt in the urban areas is uh, that direct uh, effect coming from the rural areas being affected and the urban areas is all becoming affected. So because with the scarcity of food makes food prices go much higher in the urban areas. And of course, in the urban areas, the key to food security is mainly around availability and access. So availability that it's there, but now we're seeing if it's not produced, it will be because it's making it available, right? The second thing is if there's scarcity of food, you know, talk of supply and demand, then if there's scarcity of food supply, the costs are gonna go high. And these makes them already more vulnerable populations in the urban areas, more vulnerable to, uh, to you know, become, basically become food insecure. The other thing is uh, in terms of uh, urban areas, what you've seen is, um, the drainage systems. So, as for instance, when it rains a lot, and um, you know uh, these extreme weather situations, you see that urban areas do, have not been um, constructed in such a way as, um, and we can see this not just in African areas, but also in the world. The drainage systems basically become overburdened. But also in some parts, you see people being swept away. So we have cases of death. And then uh, the more uh, water retention there is, stagnant water in the African uh, in the African context, then you have stagnant water that 
lead to numerous diseases, especially, you know, becoming breeding places for mosquitoes and then you have malaria as well. So you have all these basically um, effects that come with um, climate change and uh, that, that basically that are, that are, that are being uh, exacerbated by climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for my next question, we're going to take a little, uh, we're going to go a little further. So mm -hmm. um, a few years back, there was a lot of people demanding for help from the um, international community to help African countries take the green turn. Because a lot of African, uh, African people or African groups uh, were saying that it was not necessarily only their fault that they were uh, experiencing all these problems, but right. the fault of like these Europeans or American countries that have been industrialized and for years have been polluting. So we're wondering what ties you're making with uh, maybe like post-colonization or colonization uh, mm -hmm. and the climate change uh, issues in Africa. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I, th I think they are, they are really tied to the hip um, because Uh, let me just point a few key things. So, like I said, uh, climate change has to be a global effort because wh whoever engages in pollution or emits, you know, um, whatever you pollute, it means that uh, you can affect life around the planet. And it's true, uh, much of the industrialized countries, uh, as history tells us, Uh, have been more responsive in terms of, um, you know, uh, emitting uh, CO2 to, to the atmosphere and uh, which has been uh, responsible for the climate change. So, so in that regard, uh, Africans do feel hard done because um, they're suffering challenges that have been mainly uh, caused elsewhere. But at the same time, um, we're seeing a push by African countries to modernize and go basically follow the you know, modernization theory. It's, we say kind of, we challenge it in the academy and say it's dead, but like when you go to many countries in practice, you see that it's very much alive. So that's kind of the paradox, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing is um, uh, the colonial, so now to talk about you know, the, 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 some of the uh, underlying factors, the colonial period are basically Uh, has undone most of the African ways of life. So in such ways that they, the effects of climate change are being felt and being uh, exacerbated in ways that, that, are, that, are, that we can attribute to the, to the colonial or to the colonial period and the colonial, uh, the continuing neocolonial effect. Why do I say this? Um, so as I said, uh, traditional communities had traditional ways of living which if you look, we see that they are very much uh, based on relating with nature or relating with the land and, uh, and, and water, like you're talking about, you know, pastoralists or farmers and all that. Basically, you see relations with the land, not as a resource that has to be used to generate profit or, or so on and so forth, but rather in ways uh, based on knowledge that has built over centuries. And so the moment colonial colonization happens and people are taken away from their land and your government would dictate how farming or agriculture would take place, which was mainly based on cash crops because it was a, an extractive um, system, right? Mm -hmm. And this meant that um, uh, indigenous ways of doing agriculture were, were, were basically replaced by these enforced um, colonial ways of conducting Uh, agriculture and engaging with the land. And so 
going on with that, then you find that the generation that comes after and the economy that's introduced because uh, colonialism is always part of the law of expanding the, the, the capitalist um, economy. Uh, you find that now instead of uh, relating with the land and working communally and all that, it promotes more individualistic approach. And we see changes in terms of land tenure where you have individualized tenure coming in, where individuals are basically um, made to treat land purely as a resource, uh, which you, you, you have to use and generate profit, but not to have a relationship that uh, you, you depend on the environment and therefore you have to treat uh, the environment right for you to survive. So it's very much profit-based. And um, the focus on cash crops, for instance, and, um, uh, and overproduction, because that's how capitalism is. You have to produce and produce. And, um, and we've seen even with uh, whatever they call, so some of those have been called you know, green revolution, promotion of fertilizers and all that we've seen over time. What happens is that the soils, for example, become less fertile and they used to use more fertilizers and much more and more until the cost of production become much higher than uh, the, the, the amount, the revenues that you can gain from such an activity. And so at the end of the day, you end up with um, not being able even to practice agriculture because uh, the, the soils have become so, uh, have been, are not so fertile to support agriculture. In, in terms of pastoral areas, uh, most of the fertile lands during colonization were taken by uh, white settlers. And even to date, most of them have remained in the hands of uh, white settlers, especially in looking at Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa. And so, which means most of the local people lost their lands and uh, still this is the case. And they were moved to less um, uh, favorable areas. And you can talk of the Maasai again where I do my research, move to other areas that are less fertile. And so these historical injustices come to bite us today because uh, while those fertile areas were taken away uh, they, and people pushed to less fertile areas, it means you have less uh, geographical area to, in which you can maneuver or in which you can practice your, your pastoralism, your farming. And so, and with population growth with fewer resources means as well sometimes you know, experience overgrazing. Uh, and then, this is where it becomes interesting. So having been forced into smaller areas and less fertile areas, and then as you have to survive and you have your farming or your pastoral, your, your livestock keeping, of course, it's, there's going to be a degradation of the land and the environment. So instead of tying that to the uh, appropriation, expropriation of land by, you know, by the, in the colonial period, which is considered as well in the post-independence period, it's mm -hmm. basically said that, oh, these people are not, do not know how to practice agriculture. But actually they have been coerced into moving, into having to survive, you know, having to survive in areas that are less fertile, smaller, while the rest has, has been accumulated in a few hands who are basically doing large scale plantations and uh, large scale conservation uh, areas uh, that are basically seen as, um, and because they're in the hands of the wealthier and uh, um, in some places, you know, white, those colonial uh, white settlers, then the idea is that, uh, you know, these are the ones who know how to do agriculture or to do conservation, yeah. and these are the ones that uh, don't know how to do agricultural conservation, and therefore we need to teach them. And so you find that, uh, you know, young students coming from even here or other universities around, especially from Europe or North America, being sent there to teach people how to be more climate aware and uh, climate smart. You hear of climate smart agriculture and students, we go there, do research and all that and train people, you know, creating awareness and all those. But actually, uh, the, 
the root of the problem is so much more different. We are only treating the symptoms. I find it even more ironic that the spotlight of the big advocates for environment or whatever are often white people or white countries, you know, it makes mm -hmm. it even more ironic. And just before I let Emily talk, uh, I would have a follow-up question. I'm a poli-sci student, right? So I feel like maybe right. that's why I'm more oriented uh, towards uh, this side of the question. I'm wondering how are gov governments and even like the international community helping uh, on that matter? Because I feel like Being in Canada, we don't really hear about it. So I'm wondering how right. proactive they are like uh, regarding these questions. Yeah. Yeah. I would be cautious to use the word uh, help because, I mean, both of you have been in a 322 um, social change in modern Africa. And uh, a part of the uh, discussions we had was the Mordecai's and the Barrier's work where they talk about the big conservation lie, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what we see with them, well, they indeed good conservation initiatives taking place, whether in support by NGOs or foreign governments or, or and sometimes national governments. What we've seen is um, these initiatives, um, which are mainly conservation-based, uh, we see as well in agriculture, we're talking about agriculture or climate smart, you know, approaches and all that. I can give examples of both, but let me stick to the more prevalent one, which is on the conservation side. Uh, we see that these initiatives are actually uh, treated as business. So you have a conservation project funded by whether you're, <laughs> you, when you go to the airport, you'll find some kinds of pottery, you contribute to WWF. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's a micro scale of the funding of these um, large conservation NGOs, right? But you have governments that fund these, you know, and, uh, and other bigger funders of NGOs that, are, that concentrate on conservation uh, work. But when you go on the ground, you find that it's being conducted as business. And um, part of that, you see that um, where do you practice conservation? It's on land. But where is this land we're going to practice conservation? Mm -hmm. You find these are mainly spaces that are occupied by indigenous people. Uh, but in order to gain access to them, you have to find ways around keeping people out in order to basically conserve that there because the uh, like we've said the logic is that people are despoiling agents of the land and therefore in order to conserve the land we need to keep the people out whether it's through the argument of um overgrazing or you know low yields we need to intervene to have higher yields and all that you find that most of the time uh, consumption projects are basically oriented towards kicking uh, indigenous peoples out we've seen you know there was a report on how wwf projects in the in many african countries especially the congo and even in um uh, in nepal have basically been conducted by kicking indigenous peoples out violently and that money is used to hire guards and security so basically what and you know top tier uh security and uh with um, um modern technologies what you're what you're basically calling a securitization of uh conservation projects and this basically meant to keep people out uh violently or forcefully so most of the money is going towards those and of course then um you know not so much focusing on the communities that live in these places and looking at conservation as a way of life. They're treating it as a business that has to be done in a certain way, keep people out, and then the world will, you know, the, the, the land will regenerate. Uh, the most, the craziest idea that we've seen so far is uh, what they call the uh, half-earth project. It's, a, it's even in a book by uh, Edward Wilson. You can check it out, half-earth. And... Um, Basically, this idea is that, uh, you know, we need to keep half of the earth empty of humans and uh, human activity in order to help the, the, the earth, the planet to regenerate. 
And um, so when you think about it, and as Mordecai notes clearly, which are these areas that are where mm-hmm. people are going to be moved out in order to, <laughs> to you know, to, to get this half earth? Definitely is going to be the African context and other and other areas where we, we're seeing, you know, um, in the global south, basically, if this idea were to become a reality. And it's being actualized in different ways where you're seeing uh, payment for environmental services schemes that are all forced ever, you know, states, states are used to, um, to legitimate, basically, uh, ever, uh, forceful um, evictions of local communities and indigenous peoples. So they use the state as a way to kick people out. And then this money is rolled in to employ this all this security and basically free up the land. And all of a sudden, what you'll get is a report on how much land we've conserved, how many trees we've planted, all that. But you're not told the whole story. You're only being told one story. That's why that expose uh, on WWF was so important, just to show that every kind of life that's lived on the ground when you talk about conservation. And so um, due to these multiple experiences, what you're seeing now is more Africans are becoming vocal with social media and other attacks because uh, you know we have more platforms now to communicate. Conservation is now being... Um, hyphen is con and then slash conservation. So it's a con game, basically. It's a conservation, not just conservation. So so it's a con game that's going on and people are exposing some of these basically tendencies of um, uh, violently kicking indigenous and local people out of their, their land in order to, to engage in what you're saying, like greening the, the planet. Mm-hmm. So we need to be aware of uh, those kind of politics. Um, the uh, state has a power to do that, and therefore they can use certain laws or whether, but mainly we've seen it through land reforms where uh, the state can basically uh, take the land for purposes that are for public good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means now that they have the right to kick you out of the land and use it for conservation. You see this in um, countries that have been praised for being progressive in terms of um, conservation Botswana, where you have indigenous people being kicked out and access being uh, denied to these spaces. So it comes with a lot of violence. And therefore what we are sometimes when people in the West have been told these are friendly initiatives of greening the planet. We see actually as uh, we can look at the work of James Fairhead with what he calls a green grabbing is what's taking place on the ground. Thank you so much for talking about that. Actually, before taking your class, uh, Social Changes in uh, Modern Africa, I had no idea about like all the, the problems that conservations, when it was like brought by NGOs, uh, like the conservation lies, the fact that people were getting kicked out, kicked out of, of their lands. I really had no idea. And as a person from the West, it also made me wonder how we could you know like do our part or like see what we could do to um you know like even though i don't like this word like help these communities uh, live a better life without you know like um being lied to by large ngos like the wwf so -hmm. that brings me to my next point which is about there was a documentary that was made last year about the great green wall so mm-hmm. I'm sure that's an initiative that you're uh, well documented about. Uh, what do you think about this project? Is it a utopia? Do you think it's going to work out? Do you think it's going to bring bring uh, sustainable changes in different parts of uh, Africa? What do you think about it? Right. Um, actually, I've been surprised by how little um, 
publicity that um, this project has received. Um, I, and even myself, I didn't learn about it like long ago. Um, and even in you look on the internet, there's not so much that has been published uh, on this project. Um, and, and even on their website, if you look at the um, where they talk about impacts and results, there's not too much that has been uh, put in. But when the little content that's there says that a lot of, has been achieved, um, I do not. I cannot say have much, much details, but from the information, um, limited information that's there, whether it's through academic articles or the website itself. Uh, it seems an ambitious project. And uh, it's maybe in terms of scale, it's um, in the African context, it's probably first of its kind. But in terms of bringing communities together and creating this kind of awareness and providing the necessary resources to rehabilitate land, I don't think it's it's not the first one. You know, we have Wangari uh, Mathai in Kenya with the Green Belt Movement started in 1977, which um, I think uh, shows us, I'm just going to use, uh, come to Great Green Wall via, um, by way of talking about uh, Wangari Mathai's Green Belt Movement. Um, so Wangari Mathai, um, she was concerned that, um, you know, uh, about the environmental uh, degradation and what communities could do to restore uh, the environment because um, in the post-independence period they could see how quickly the environment was becoming degraded and so Wangari Mathai uh, saw that actually part of it was um, uh, a problem as well of uh, uh, disempowering women uh, who are mainly in the African context women are mainly the ones who work on the land and relating with the land on every day where they're collecting firewood and all that so they relate with the land and um, that disempowering of women and basically it's a, it's a two-way um, challenge because you degrade the land, you also disempower those people who relate with the land more closely. And when you also disempower those people who relate with the land more closely, you also uh, degrade the environment because uh, we need to care for our environment. And so she started this movement, which has now become international. She won the Nobel Prize in uh, 2004. Unfortunately, she passed on in 2011, but her legacy lives on because of this creation of awareness that uh, you know we need to relate with our land in, in this way and not in the um, to see it as a resource that has to be extracted. We cannot just extract without relating. And one of the key things that uh, she noted is we need communities, um, a communal cooperation, basically community initiatives, because we can as as much as individuals we can do things. Uh, we have to basically think as communities because. It becomes harder for people to think about um, uh, about communities working together or individuals working together uh, when you think about land. But when you think about water and uh, rivers, you can see the sense in it because um, the difference between land and uh, rivers or water is that the water flows through and uh, will basically traverse um, uh, land boundaries where you can say, this is my plot of land, that's uh, Felicia's and that's Emily's and that's someone else's, John's and whoever's. Um, the river will flow throughout. So if the person upstream uh, basically appropriates or mismanages the river, the effects will also be felt downstream. And therefore there will be that kind of um, uh, full effect uh, impact on, on, on the whole population. But the land, especially with the uh, promotion of the uh, individual tenure, people basically become autonomous owners of their land and they say, I can do with my land what I want and nobody can tell me what to do with it, right? So that, and that's basically uh, private tenure is uh, basically uh, some others about you. This is a glue that 
pulls together the capitalist project, and that's why these uh, land reforms are pushed towards um, uh, the way to marketize land or create land markets is by uh, creating private tenure. So, and this breaks up communities because what you're saying in the commons, pastoral commons, uh, the breakdown of commons is through um, creating a private tenure. So for the Great Green Wall, if you imagine a project that, you know, spans from West Africa all the way to the Eastern Africa, you know, from Senegal to Djibouti and all those countries, if you see there will be um, a lot of communities, uh, states, there'll, there'll, there'll be need of cooperation from different levels, multi-levels, uh, for it to succeed and uh, different environments or different uh, uh, landscapes will require different kind of interventions or the type of species uh, that they have to use and all that will have to be different. So I saw they did some pilot projects and they're bringing some of that knowledge to the, to the project. I think at the end of the day, it's all about commitment and uh, creating this awareness um, of the necessity, you know, to, to protect these communities because Sometimes you talk of capitalism as if it's a standalone, um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a monster that comes and attacks you, but really uh, we have to think of capitalism as a matter of relations. How do I relate to the person next to me? How do I relate to the, to the other person? Or how do we relate as a, as a society? It's more about like when you have to pay for your school fees, for, for the food you eat, for your breakfast and for your dinner, for your lunch and all that. At the end of the day, you have to think, where am I going to get money from because I have to buy this? So it draws from those similarly like mundane everyday activities and those start to determine like the economies, the way we relate with the, uh, with the land, see it as resource rather than just having relations that are not profit oriented. So the demands from outside uh, force us to relate with the, uh, with the environment in certain ways. And this continues to erode some of those um, relations that cannot be quantified because capitalism, ha capitalism has to quantify for you to generate a profit, you know, to get that uh, dollar to, to pay for something, right? And so for communities to be able to conduct community projects, they have to be, uh, you know, there has to be ultimate participation that is, uh, that, that they can, uh, themselves cannot just sustain themselves because they have these uh, extra demands that will force people to choose how to spend their time. Uh, but, and so that's why there is need for so much support across those countries. And we know, of course, some of the territories are faced with different difficulties, you know, whether it's wars or even, um, the, you know, in terms of geography, climate, there are different challenges are going to be, uh, to be faced. So I think, I don't think it's utopian. I think it depends on the uh, will to succeed. Um, there has to be undying will to, face, to know that there will be challenges and we will to, to be ready to face those challenges. Uh, they, I think its success will be dependent on the will to uh, to succeed. So maybe for the last question, I think we're, we have time for one last question. But I'll stay on topic when you talk about money and capitalism. Um, so do you think that all this effort towards uh, environmental change uh, can impede the, the development of Africa or African countries. So when we talk about economic development, like all these new measures, you know, related to the land or water or, you know, just uh, fighting for the environment, can all that stop uh, economic development in, in African countries? Um, so when you talk of the economy, um, there's again the tendency to, to see it in terms of dollars and, uh, you know, measurement of GDP. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's just uh, solely focusing on that, we can, the argument would probably be that, um, you know, going green is going to be uh, costly because it means you can't pollute on your way or climbing up the ladder and all that. 
and you have to kind of uh, not basically, you have to reinvent the wheel in many places because uh, the older technologies um, basically pollute the environment and all that. So going that way, you that's why you hear some arguments that um, this is a push to slow down uh, African development, um, economic development. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, if you look at the African context, if we can think, uh, for instance, let's take the example of tourism, which is um, uh, in terms of conservation seen as a revenue generating uh, activity, uh, tourism is treated as being separate to the activities that are going on the ground and the lives of the people. And like you say, uh, the presence of even what people go for safari to see that, that you know, the, that the big five are present, it's evidence of the harmonious relations that people who live in those spaces have had with these species. They didn't go, you know, or went on killing of all the species. It's because they have coexisted with them over time. And the challenges we are seeing is because of whatever now we're trying to measure with GDP, uh, basically the capitalist uh, growth. Uh, capitalism has never saved the environment. Capitalism is always antithetical to environmental conservation because it feeds on it. So capitalism is dependent on the environment because it feeds on it. So if we say that we have to depend on capitalism to save the environment, it will never happen because it feeds on it. Um, so we have to imagine um, uh, uh, a different way of what it means to to improve quality of life, not to depend on measurements of GDP, because at the end of the day, you can have a huge GDP, but the world is uh, concentrated on only 2% or 1% of the population, but you're posting a high GDP and everyone else is basically, their labor is being exploited and that comes with destroying the environment. So we have to rethink um, as well, how when we talk about uh, uh, conservation and caring for the planet, we, we, we cannot do that as a separate thing to uh, the factories and the industries elsewhere in the world. It has to be in a way that um, whatever ways we choose to improve the quality of life is in sync with other with our life in general. So it has to be uh, an effort to, re- to rethink uh, and also reimagine a different way of living and relating with the world. And uh, we've seen some of this happening in um, Latin America, like uh, in um, Bolivia and I believe Ecuador, where you see basically uh, the environmental nature where they've come up with nature rights. And uh, in order to protect that from the um, capitalism and instead of talking of sustainable development, uh, people are talking about alternatives or, or instead of talking about development alternatives, people are talking about alternatives to development because development is already tied to capitalism and therefore, it's it's already the first foot we've already put uh, put the wrong foot forward. So mm-hmm. we have to talk about alternatives to development because development is already uh, poisoned. It's, it's it's its source. So for the African context, um, there will be a lot of work to be done because, as we see, there is a lot of push towards, like I say, modernization. Well, in class we talk about we challenge modernization theory as passe. On the ground, uh, within African, uh, in the African context, and uh, many places in the world, it's very much alive. So, to what extent are we uh, are we are we ready to face the truth? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, even with the COVID nineteen and all that, what you're seeing is as well like mentions about African population growth and all that. But really, are you talking about like you know if you look at the size of Africa and the population that's there, you can't talk about. I mean, I find it, and I probably most people will not agree with this, especially from the West, but talking of population um, 
uh, African population growing too much and causing environmental damage is nonsensical at this point because uh, we should be talking about consumption. If you look at consumption, because consumption is what has led to this, this current system of consumption led by you know, global capitalism is mm-hmm. what has led to this. And so we're again talking about overpopulation that's that's basically again another lie that's being used basically to perpetuate this thinking that uh, you know the African is responsible and not thinking and not planning you know in terms of population growth and all that. But it's another way of div- you know diverting us from really the core of the problem. Even more ironic with the colonial past and all the damage that it did. It's even more ironic that African people are pointing to for the problem. Ex- Exactly, yeah. and, and you know, and and if we can do that, then you'd see industries like us, um, not even industry sectors like tourism, mm-hmm. not become uh, basically as a business strategy. It will be basically be an outcome of a of people living in a certain way that they have, you know, uh, conserved and managed the environment in a certain way, related with the world around them in a certain way. That mm-hmm. basically means that. Uh, biodiversity is conserved and therefore you can be you can move from here and go see uh what's there in tanzania and serengetis you can go to south africa botswana namibia kenya and other places gabon and all that instead of saying okay this is a project and we need to put this amount of money and keep the people out and they, you mm-hmm. know I, and that's that's not going to work it has to be reminded as a way of life it's it's not it's not an <laughs> it's not a you know a sector of the economy that basically depends on production and um, consumption and then you generate profits and then say we've done it. No, 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 it's totally different. Think about life because there are a lot of costs that are given to the environment by the, um, by the current economic model, capitalist model that are never counted for. And now that is what is coming to bite us back. And that's why you're hearing of payment for environmental service scheme, which means quantifying how much environment the, world, the planet can do for us. But mm-hmm. a lot is missed out there. And you're seeing you know, a lot of um, popularization of payment for environmental services schemes in the African context. But at the end of the day, uh, they're full of contradictions because from the source, like I said, they have, they're already contradictory to what we are trying to achieve in terms of saving the planet. Mm-hmm. So those are amazing words to conclude the discussion. Yes, thank you really so much. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. It was really interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for your uh, excellent questions and, um, you know, much relevant topic. And uh, yeah, and uh, I wish you all the best with the Umoja podcast. And uh, we'll continue um, with these discussions outside of Umoja podcast. But for now, uh, thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. very much.